I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we're on, Jaja Rung, and um, offer my thanks to the elders, past, present, and future. And it's with great excitement that we actually talk with a traditional owner of the land right now, who's an artist, Troy Firebrace. He's a Jaja Rung and Yorta Yorta man. Um, an artist and educator, which I'm keen to hear a little bit more about shortly. I'll do a quick summary of his recent works, things that are uh, pretty hot off the press. He was one of the lead creatives for Jara Lights, which is a large lighting install with murals um, and also augmented reality experience, which is um, right in the heart of Bendigo. He's also currently working on a large mural at a school in Harrietville which is uh, pretty exciting to see how that one comes comes around. And he's also got a full-time role at the Catholic Education Sandhurst as the Indigenous Education Officer. Uh, good, I got all the details right. That's good. <laughs> so that's a lot of different stuff in one summary. And I'm really keen to hear a bit more from Troy. How are you doing, Troy? I'm good. doing good, mate. How did you start your journey in business as an artist and educator? And was there like a specific moment when you realised this was the path for you? Yeah, I guess there was um, a couple of moments. So I honestly didn't realise that I wanted to be an artist until roughly when I was 17 years old. When I was in hospital, I was going through this stage where in and out of hospital and um, trying to do me ATAR, so trying to get that score to be a physiotherapist. And while I was in hospital, obviously there's nothing really to do other than play games and look at the walls. Uh, so I asked for just a sketch pad and a pencil and I started drawing Kangaroo Jack. That was the, it was like a poster just across from the bed. And the, uh, the old clown nurse, uh, she came in and she was like, you know, oh, I really love that um, artwork. Can you do me a card? So I started doing these cards and um, that's when I thought, oh, I wasn't going to get paid for that, obviously. I should have thought of it. You know, I, I started this whole thing around creating art, putting smiles on people's faces, even in a, in a grim kind of environment, being in the hospital. That's when I knew uh, with the art, you know, there was something there. Went through year 12, got a really low art score, decided to go do the arts just because it's something that I love doing. And um, then, yeah, through the arts, I guess the second moment was when during those years of dedicating three years to the arts, I got asked to go to a school, BSE, to do like a workshop around Aboriginal art because obviously within the education system, having someone coming to talk about Aboriginal art is is really valuable. And so they reached out and said, uh, we would love to come for you to come in and teach our class. And it was in that moment that um, I realised that, wow, like I can not only do the art in a sense of as an artist practising in a studio, but also share this with the kids. And so I just went about doing that, doing a lot of workshops with the schools and then still practising in the studio. So utilising the studio at La Trobe University in Bendigo. I guess the, the next pivotal moment was when I went to an exhibition in Melbourne at the Bunjalaka Centre and um, I was looking shabby. Like I'm talking... <laughs> long hair like brothers you haven't seen me back then i had piercings snake bites i have i saw you at the skate park that time oh man. that's yeah true i, keep I forgetting remember that. you were a skater boy you <laughs> yeah. were looking rough as guts but doing some pretty gnarly tricks though yeah well i mean geez <laughs> <laughs> well i was rough as guts i was wearing i was doing the whole two jacket thing you know the whole like you know cotton jacket <laughs> then with like a heavy jacket over the top something chronic anyway so I was at this exhibition and on the wall I had like seven pieces of artwork and there was some big fish in the room you know very corporate kind of guys and um they were walking around with their wine and cheese and I just felt like in that room in that moment like geez I feel like a charity case like full on it's just I felt like I'm here representing my artwork but the way that I feel in this moment this was so out of place. And um, I even the CEO of the Melbourne Museum bought one of my artworks and for his wife. No way. Yes. And I had That's to take awesome. a, yeah, I had to take a photo um, in front of this artwork, looking like as if I just came off the streets, fresh from the skate park. <laughs> and um, that's when I just kind of realised that in myself representing my artwork, this is where that business sense came in. If I want to take it to the next level, then I need to incorporate that business model, that kind of business thinking, that kind of representation of yourself, the selling of yourself or your artwork to the client, 
um, you're not only just selling the experience of the artwork, but you're also selling your reputation as an artist. And so that's when I started to kind of clean up, just kind of take it to that next stage. And I just went from there. Well, look at him now. He's got a white button-up collar shirt, uh, oh, looking mate. fresh. Uh, Mr. Profesh. <laughs> I've actually I've, I've got a question about that because that's a you touched on a, a really interesting point there about realising that there's more to being a, a successful artist than just the art itself. Mm. Did you have any struggles with that before? Like did that kind of enter your thinking beforehand and did you feel like you were um, you know, splitting yourself at all um, when you when you thought, no, I need to, I need to clean up and I need to get a bit of business about me. Yeah, back back before that moment, it was kind of like I was just doing the art for the sakes of doing the art, the hobby. I was the man behind the artwork, not the man in front of the artwork. And yep. um, but the the thing was, the contradicting thing about that was that I had to be at these exhibitions. Mm-hmm. I had to you know show up. I had to be a part of the exhibitions, be a part of that cheese and wine environment. There was a bit of, um, yeah, I wasn't going to be a Banksy. I wasn't going to be that, you know, that artist in the shadows because as an Aboriginal artist, you, you generally are at the forefront. People want to know who you are. And, and your story and your background exactly. and the whole lot. It was a bit of a contradiction. So at the start, I was the man in the shadows or the man behind the artwork. Then it came to that conclusion that I realised that I had to be the man in front of the artwork and thus represent myself as part of the artwork in a business sense. How did you go about it without changing yourself to a point where you're uncomfortable, like still being comfortable with yourself and who you are and how you're presenting, but bringing it up to that next level of professionalism? Is there any tricks that you sort of applied to get that balance? I guess the first thing is I'm still a skater kid at heart. I still go to skate park. If I got my board and, and even though I'm wearing, you know, a belt on, you know, <laughs> <laughs> nice dress shoes, I still go, I still hit up the skate park. I don't worry about that. And um, I think I think the first thing is you're not changing yourself. I mean, you're not, you're not changing who you are. It's more or less you're changing your comfortability. In that moment at Bunjalaka, I was not comfortable. I was not comfortable with the environment in which my artwork is being displayed in. I felt as if I'm not only well out of place, but also if I was to get asked about my artwork, I would struggle to try and talk about it in a way that I'm reflecting how I feel about my piece. That's where um, it's kind of like I started to really think about my artwork, not only as an artist practicing and expressing who I am, but also because I wanted to take it to that level, that professional level, and wanted to open the doors up to everything, not just put myself in a box. Um, that's where I started to adapt that business model. Yeah, the change that I had was was not in the sense of myself. It's just in the sense of the way I present myself in that professional level and just talking about your artwork on the wall i think we're going to have some um links to you some pictures and some content um online for you to go and have a look at troy's artwork and also follow a link to his page so while you're listening you can maybe have a look at those pics and get a bit of context around his artwork but could you describe your style or your art um for those people listening yeah so the artwork that i generally do is is it still has that that Aboriginal flair in it. Um, that's the best way to describe it. It's a it's a flair of Aboriginal culture, but it has the the kind of evolution feel to it. So it has very bright, vibrant colours, still kind of attached to the patterns and exploring that and expanding on that. Sometimes it can be very simplistic, but most of the time it's very heavily detailed. Layers upon layers and layers of work. So that's how I work within layers. And then it just builds upon itself to the point where it becomes, it's like a, almost like an abstract art, but it's not abstract. It has that heavy detail, heavy pattern work. So it feels like it has direction. Like it feels like you can see where the line is going and where it stops and starts. But essentially the the artwork still sings within Aboriginal culture and the stories are still there, the representation is still there. But the representation isn't just around the Dreamtime stories. It's the stories of today. That's the thing about I love about working within this industry is uh, the misconception is is that we do Dreamtime stories and only Dreamtime stories. The simple fact is Dreamtime is always continuous. It's here today. It's what we live. And so there are issues that we face today. There are stories that are evolving today or 
are born today and it's about capturing those moments and within that artwork. Yeah, that's really interesting. It brings me to wonder about your role with the Catholic Education Sandhurst as well because talking a lot about your art practice and I kind of want to balance that out a little bit with your education history and what that role is and also how they how they come together and meet in the middle. Good question. <laughs> I feel like I'm self-discovering right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's how we want you to feel. <laughs> I guess when we look at an artist, the, the fallback for a job as an artist, curator, work in the gallery, will you start your business as an artist or art teacher? And back then when I was going through uni, I did not know what to do with my art. And so the fallback was I'm just going to be an art teacher. I was striving to do, go do education. I didn't discover that I loved teaching kids until I actually was doing those workshops with BSE. What happened was I followed on through pretty much doing the workshops to the point where I was doing a lot of the Catholic schools. And one of the ladies at the office, her name is Bernadette McPherson, she picked me up and said, um, you know, we would love to employ you here at the CES um, as part of the Aboriginal education team. And I said, okay, all right, well, let's, let's give it a crack. At firstly, I turned it down just because in that moment I was still working as an artist, still building the company, still building the business and trying to get ahead of that. And, um, you know, they, these guys wanted someone full-time Monday to Friday and I could only give them two days a week. So they offered me a part-time role started developing that. But the education thing, it's not just teaching the kids. It's actually, it's like emitting change within this actual system. So we look at things like developing the curriculum for the teachers, providing them training. We also provide uh, programs for the students, teachers and parents as well to get involved. We provide experience. So we ring up community members who are running programs outside the school and get them connected in. We touch base with our kids, we touch base with the parents, you know, issues around enrolments, issues around just trying to get uniforms. Yeah, we're there at the forefront making sure we're at least um, supporting as much as we possibly can. And then obviously the next stage above that is looking at the CES, so the actual office itself, so developing that side of things and, and progressing and developing and growing within that. So the, the role in itself, it's not just about you know, teaching the kids. It's actually developing the system, if that makes sense. I love that. Yeah, that it goes way beyond, you know, when you when someone says, you know, Troy's the Aboriginal art education officer, you, you think, oh, cool, he's, he's teaching kids how to paint. Uh, but that is so deep and that's, that's fantastic. Like it's, uh, it would, it must feel like quite an honour to be, you know, injected into the heart of an organisation and have such ability to affect positive change. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, and that's where that, that second side of me comes from, the passion. You know, when I was going through education through my career as a, as a student, there was nothing, absolutely nothing. And um, there are a lot of kids out there, a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids who are growing up without culture or not exposed to culture. There are kids out there who feel as if they don't have the rights to identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander because they haven't had the opportunity to learn about it. If we can target a place that all these kids are at, which is the schools, and provide that experience, we are not only catering to their education, but also providing them an opportunity to learn about culture. And for me, when I was going through school, if I found out that oh, I can go and learn how to play didge at school or I can learn about my culture or learn about um, you know, my uncles or aunties or an elder that's coming in to teach me about um, stories and that kind of stuff, which I, I didn't really hear at home. I'm going to rock up at school and I'm going to mm. be there to be part of that because yeah. it's an opportunity as an Aboriginal man or an Aboriginal woman to be a part of that, be a part of education because that's what it's about. And so that passion... The education side, that's where that's come from. Yeah, that's amazing. And there's also like a practical side to what you do as well. Like you've spoken about the affecting cultural change within a business, but you also get to be on the ground, hands on mm -hmm. doing stuff as well. And what, what kind of projects do they look like? Yeah, so the, the hands on projects, it could be um, implementing arts projects. So Indigenous gardens, we, you know, in the last couple of years, we've been building and developing and doing art with the kids, the whole school, uh, actually creating an Indigenous garden 
in the actual school itself. Yeah, so we had projects like that. We've had projects where we run a whole um, days of art activity. There's been days we run Indigenous games, uh, so sporting games. Um, so we do everything and anything around um, the sports, the arts, um, dance, singing, instruments, anything. Um, anything to do with Aboriginal yeah. culture, we run, we develop, deliver. Caleb, you said you've done some work with the uh, that organisation as well. Yes, yes, CES, I have. We actually, uh, we did a little bit of work together, Troy. I, I had the honour of capturing a acknowledgement of country from that had been written and sung by some students from the Catholic Education Sandhurst, one of the schools. And it was great because I got to film Troy playing his didge and yeah. walking around and capture <laughs> that in a kind of a, a story, you know, visual storytelling way, which was which was heaps of fun. I think that was, was that the first time we met Troy? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it was before the push-up thing. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a little inside joke uh, about Caleb being the push-up man. So that's that's where we normally see Caleb out on the street doing push-ups. And that's how you know where he is. Yeah. Uh, unbelievable. I think that's the first time I've ever done push-ups in public and Troy's fiance <laughs> managed to spot me doing them. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, now I'm known as the push-up guy. Thank you. But uh, <laughs> so that was, yeah, heaps and heaps of fun. They're, they're a great organisation. And, uh, yeah, it was it was heaps of fun to see someone play and uh, just work with someone who, who, who can play the dig uh, continuously. I had given that a good red-hot crack when I was a kid. But, yeah, the, the circular breathing, never got it down. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I think it's considered the hardest woodwind instrument to play just because of that. Yeah. yeah, so for those who don't understand, to play the didgeridoo, you have to breathe in through your nose at the same time that you're playing with wind going out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. H- how did you learn that? Just quickly, we're not going to dwell on this point. But no, you're how did, right. How do you learn that? Um, it takes practice. Um, they always say put a straw in a cup of water, try and blow bubbles into that water while trying to breathe through your nose. Uh, the best way to describe it, just store air in your mouth like a scuba tank and then while you're using the muscles in your mouth to push that air out, said air, you have probably two seconds to breathe through your nose quickly. Um, it does take wow. practice and, yeah, frustration is inevitable. <laughs> uh, I think that's a good place to springboard <laughs> yep. from the didgeridoo. How do you uh, go about, and this is culturally based, like we're talking about, you know, the, the balance between culture and uh, holding on to culture, protecting culture and sharing it. How do you go about that as an Indigenous man and educator? How do you uh, walk the line of sharing culture and stories and uh, at the same time protecting what's sacred to your culture? Yeah, so the interesting thing about Aboriginal art is that um, a lot of our stories, culture, knowledge is, is stored within the arts. It's, it's you know, Aboriginal culture and Torres Strait Islander culture is not a written culture. Everything is sung, everything is shared, everything's passed down. So there's the three basic forms, so the dance, the songs, um, and obviously the art. When we develop the artwork, we are actually embedding Aboriginal culture within that artwork itself. And so the responsibility of sharing the stories or sharing that insight to the culture itself, it really does weigh on our shoulders. A lot of the, you know, the, the best arguments in this country um, is around the arts. It could be around the copyright. It could be around what's been painted. It could be around um, ensuring that the integrity of the Aboriginal arts or stories or the spirits or the ancestors have been upheld within the artwork. Um, I, I guess as, a, as an artist... Um, I am in the most exposed, I guess, area mm. of of being an Aboriginal man painting because not only am I putting myself out there, I'm putting my culture out there. So I have to ensure the respect and upholding that um, the sacredness within the art is 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 there. And you can't mm. just you can't just dive into it and think you know oh, I should be right. You have to make sure that you know what you're painting and you know the meaning behind the meaning. And this is where, as, a, as an artist and as an Aboriginal man, I learned a lot about my culture through my practice, uh, just for that simple fact. So trying to 
uphold the community, uphold the community stories, ensure that respect is there, ensure that um, whatever I'm painting or displaying, especially in the public eye, it's respectful not in, through to my practice, but also respectful to the community. I'm not going to develop something or, or design something that's going to upset or go against my culture. It is a balance. There is a, a fine balance and through practice you get used to knowing. And in starting out in that process of learning how to um, tell those stories through a visual medium, what a, how, do the, how can you actually go about starting that? And I'm thinking particularly if there's young Indigenous artists who are listening who maybe haven't really jumped into that space yet or started creating works that are on display, what would you say to uh, people like that who who want to make a start and how to get that balance right for them? Yeah, so the first thing you need to do is, is talk to your family. You know, talk to your family, get to know, you know, where they stand in, a, in their Aboriginal culture, um, what stories they know of, and pay attention to the community as well. You know, listen to the community, be a part of the community, and you, you'll find and learn the boundaries. What are the boundaries? And if, so once you get your head around that and head around the community, when you start to develop your artwork, you've got two pathways to go along. The first pathway is the traditional pathway where you really are sticking to the community stories. You're sticking to uh, the Dreamtime stories and developing things in a very traditional way, you know, representing the ancestors, the spirits of the land, the country itself. And the other pathway you could go is a very contemporary pathway. That's when you're really going down that line of it's a balance between yourself, the artist, and then your culture. And so the question that arises in those moments is, are you painting an artwork based on you as an artist in that response to the land, to the country? So it's your personal response? Or are you developing an artwork that's a, a cultural response from the community? So it's a big fine balance in the contemporary sense. So for any um, young Indigenous artists who are looking to dive into that, you need to learn no country you need to be embedding country explore country because the more you know about country the more you learn about country the better and easier it's going to be to help you develop your artwork uh, because your understanding of what culture and country is is what's going to help you further develop that's some really good advice for uh some young indigenous artists looking to to develop i'm really really uh, glad that we we talked about that. One thing that kind of leads into is when we're talking about artists or we're, we're talking to artists that are looking to maybe make a career out of this, be a commercial artist, what are some skills and knowledge that they uh, need to actually commercialise their craft and actually live off their work? The defining moment and the most important moment is to realise that if this is a career, if this is a something you want to live off, then you must treat it as a business. You can't just treat it as a hobby because it will ever forever be a hobby. And a hobby is something that you do in your spare time. Oh, a hobby is also something that you do but don't make money off. Yeah, well, that's that's true. <laughs> and so, yeah, you gotta you gotta make sure that if you want to extend beyond beyond the hobby, that's when you're starting to become business you're starting to turn it into a business and that's that's a simple fact you you have to know the business models you have to know the processes the invoices the quotations you have to know um, the skills to be able to write proposals uh, to galleries or to even clients you know you've got to learn how to sell you got to sell you got to learn how to sell not only yourself but also your artwork because you are representing yourself and the artwork itself You've got to stand in front of it. As I said before back then, is you're standing in front of your artwork, you're selling the artwork, um, and so you, know, you have to have those skills. Mm, so but, some of those things you mentioned are potentially learnt skills that you've learnt along mm -hmm. the way and through the process of doing it and maybe messing it up and having another shot, 100%. as we all have. Are there any that you would pull out as the, the pillars of what you should focus on? What would you isolate as, like, if you're going to jump in, focusing on this area, make sure you've got that sound. You know, are there any of those kind of pillars? Yeah, so um, Sydney Connect was an event held in, in Sydney where a lot of the Indigenous businesses around Australia get to mingle with a lot of the CEOs of major companies, ANZ, NAB, 
the mining companies, even the post office, you know, Australian Post. In that moment, I learnt that, one, you've got to be prepared. You've got to be prepared with your artwork, with the folio work, and prepared with uh, what you're going to say. You can't just say, oh, this is my artwork. This is, this is what it represents. Rah, rah. You have to go further. Then the language, the actual business language. In that sense, I was, I was in with the big fish. So I've got to not only learn how to sell myself, sell the artwork, but also get on their level, understand their level, their um, corporate world. You can't just hold a conversation with the, with the CEO, say, the ANZ or CEO of the mining company without understanding where they're coming from, what's their world. Because the more I learnt about their world, the easier it was for me to develop a relationship. And that's the next stage. Once you understand the language spoken, then it's the relationships that you build. And those relationships is what helps you go further. It's like a stepping stone. That was a, a turning moment for me, was going to Sydney Connect, learning the lingo, uh, learning that business language, being confident in what I'm trying to sell, developing those relationships. And that's, that's where I learned that that's what needs to happen. How long did it take you to get from those two points, from that discovery of, hey, I'm going to be an artist, to that point where you're like, I'm an artist and I've kind of got my shit sorted out now? How long do you think that took? Uh, yeah, look, it probably took about about two years. And it's, it's all practice. It's all trial and error. No one really teaches you this stuff. You have to be a part of it. You have to be out there, experience it, learn from your mistakes. That's the that's the best advice. Learn from mistakes. Don't make the same mistake twice. Understand that you've made a mistake and learn from it. And so it took me two years to kind of really start understanding how to create my art into a career. Again, basic stuff. Yeah, learn how to do an invoice. Learn how to create a resume, a quotation, know the difference. Now um, my business is run through Xero, which is an accounting program. Um, and yeah, again, another thing that you've got to understand, you need an accountant, you need to understand it. ABNs, you need to understand, you know, how your tax works, GST, all that kind of stuff. You know, these are, these are nouns or they're, they're, these are words or terms that you learn as you develop your business. Um, and so start small invoice quotations, work your way up, but importantly, relationships, communication, um, is, is key. Yeah, they're very good points. And I raised the thing about the uh, how long it took because in, the, in that starting out position, it can feel like, oh my God, I'm so far behind. I don't know what I'm doing. And you're like, it needs to happen tomorrow. But in reality, it, it actually takes quite a bit of time to accumulate these skills and figure out where your strengths and weaknesses are. That's right. Like it's, it's, it's like no one's going to be able to talk to a big honcho or a big fish, as we call, in confidence. It, it all comes with practice. It really does. Practice, even just in a writing language, like writing an email. You know, there, it does take time to get used to writing an email. Even just simple things like, how do you sign off an email? Oh, cheers, mate. Troy. You know what I mean? Or, <laughs> yeah, I mean, or, or totally. I, uh, doesn't each one have a different me- If you say, like, have you seen those uh, memes about what the sign off actually means? Like, as to how <laughs> passive aggressive you are? Like, yeah. uh, best wishes is, you know, that's very nice. But, uh, you know, uh, regards, res- regards is a bit cold and, you know, it's just automatically filled in. What are the other ones? Yeah, thank you. Or there could be uh, look forward to chatting soon or all yeah. those kind of stuff. My go to is uh, talk soon. Sincerely. 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 That's another one. What was your go-to, Reese? Uh, talk soon. Talk soon. Yeah. Talk yeah. soon. It just yeah, see, that's, assumes, that's pretty chilled and relaxed. It assumes yeah. that I'm going to be in touch soon and things are still yeah. moving along. What's your go-to now? Are you saying that? What do you put sign off on? Oh, I say thanks, chat soon, rah, rah, or, yeah. or um, yeah. Uh, Troy, <laughs> just put your name <laughs> Troy. <laughs> just want to be real blunt, but see that's that's that language that you've learned within business. We can joke about it because we we understand it, we dealt with it, we deal with it. And when you start now, you know you start to learn. You know what is a sign of? What is those terms? What even just things like oh, how do you start one? Hi Jessica, you know. Oh, g'day. You know, how do you start? And it's, and it's again, it is a learnt thing. It ha- comes with experience. It comes with dealing with clients. It comes with dealing with business, writing quotations, getting yourself in that pool to learn how to swim. That's mm, what it's about. Yeah. Throw yourself in there and you got to learn how to swim. And eventually you'll right. swim back to the shoreline and do it all over again. Yeah, that's it. I hey, love uh, it. 
uh, well, you're out there swimming right now doing your thing. Like, <laughs> I don't know how you fit in so many projects, mate. It's absolutely phenomenal. But I was going to, I wanted to ask to delve in a little bit deeper about the traditional art versus contemporary, because I know you lean a bit more to the contemporary side, but there are some traditional elements in mm-hmm. your artworks. But you've also branched out in projects like Jar of Lights, which focuses on the six seasons. That's right, the six seasons. That had augmented reality, a mural, mm-hmm. a sign decal, a neon glowing um, artwork. We'll put a link to, th- to this project in the um, online as well. Can you tell me a bit how you approach um, how you approach that traditional versus contemporary and where you want to see your artwork go? Yeah, so in this sense or that project, traditionally it was very heavy. So it had the traditional stories, it had the traditional knowledge. The, the actual artwork itself uh, was very kind of semi-watt traditional, especially the light installation, uh, very much around traditional sense. The contemporary was the medium. So that was the very contemporary side of it. You know, to augment reality, bringing it, you know, taking that traditional mark making and bringing it within a, a kind of contemporary medium. That was a that was a very interesting challenge for me as an artist because I'm used to you know very kind of contemporary, wacky, vibrant. You know, so I had to really pare down. And as an artist, these types of projects are great projects because you can't stay in the one box. You have to keep exploring. You have to keep developing. And so through this that project, I not only learned how to develop augment reality and and learn how to do the virtual reality stuff, uh, but it was my first light installation. Um, first um, kind of directing where I wanted the, the lights to, to go on the building. Um, it was a collaboration with Drew Berwick and, um, and that was another challenge because he, he's over in Melbourne. Uh, so it was communication, using the technology, again, in that sense, uh, we had to make sure that it was on par. Um, so, yeah, so in that sense, the, the traditional um, side of it was very much the storytelling. It was the community stories that we were telling. In the contemporary sense, it was the medium. And um, as an artist, uh, it was trying to find that how to keep the traditional respect through a contemporary um, model without, I guess, drowning out the respect or that traditional element. And that was the balance. I mean, we can go, you know, we can go really retro and just make everyone spin out, but it could, <laughs> it could cloud the um, mm. traditional stories within it. So we had to have that balance. I think you achieved that really well in that project. It's um, uh, it was fascinating. <laughs> it's a, a, a Bendigo first, and um, just really dominating in the in the landscape as well, which which um, drew a lot of attention. Um, and yeah, I encourage anyone who hasn't seen it to um, to get out there and and have a look. Mm, and that, see right there, the, the contemporary side of that that light sculpture. The whole idea behind that was that we want it to be a huge beacon, a flashing beacon to say, this is Jara country, this is Jarjarong country, we are here. Yeah, so that there's your contemporary concept. I wanted mm. to make a loud and proud artwork that is just beaming, beacon of the night, mm. but still have the traditional elements, which was the, the actual artwork itself. It still hold its traditional you know, crosshatch, simple design, symbolism. But the contemporary element to that was we wanted to be loud, proud, out there, visible. Mm, yeah, I just got shivers when you said that, mate. <laughs> Powerful stuff. Yeah. But yeah. I, it makes me um, want to know more about how people can go about working with Indigenous artists. So Troy and I have actually done quite a few projects together now, um, non-Indigenous, working with an Indigenous artist. And me personally, I sometimes get a bit nervous about what I can and can't ask. And I've got a really good relationship with Troy now, so I ask him all kinds of stuff that I definitely wouldn't ask anyone else. <laughs> and so that's been a really good sounding board for me. But what would you say to someone who hasn't collaborated with a First Peoples artist or maybe a, you know, a business or a, a um, curator who's wanting to engage in those traditional stories? You know, what's the appropriate process to go about that? So the first thing is, is that you can't be a stranger. So that's what we say in the community is that you're a stranger to us. And that's someone who we haven't seen before, haven't heard from before. And when someone's a stranger, of course, we're going to be hesitant around you. 
because we are unsure who you are, what's your story, where you come from. The interesting thing about an Aboriginal artist is that we get asked a lot from us and that's um, to share the story. We get asked all the time, oh, we want a reconciliation action plan artwork. Can you do one from us? Or we want to do a mural because we want to represent um, how we are in the community. A lot of the Aboriginal artists, you know, we, we get asked a lot to share our stories, to share our identity, to help organisations or clients to show the public, show the world that you know, they are part of the community. We are asking a lot of our Aboriginal artists to be exposed, to be um, out there. And so when we have someone who approaches us who we don't know, who asks us to share our identity, we ask them first, can you share yours? Because well, I don't know who, where you come from. And that's where, that's where it starts. So you have to be known, whether you're a business or a client. You know, you've got to be known in the community. You've got to be, you've got to know who's the community, know who the traditional custodians are of the, of the country, know who, who you talk to. You know, you can't just rock up to an Aboriginal person and say, hey, are you Aboriginal? Can you do an artwork for me? You've got to know, you know, oh, hey, Troy, um, I know your family, rah, rah, this and that. Love to have seen your artwork around. You know, know who you're talking to. So um, the first step is to know, know the community, be a part of the community, mm. know at least the traditional custodians of the country. Um, the second thing after that is is to understand that you might say something that either be appropriate or non-appropriate, but be aware of that. Don't dive in straight away because in that moment we're still learning who you are and then once we get to know who you are and you know us, that relationship is what becomes the cushioning of those awkward conversations. It's great advice. Yeah. yeah, it definitely allows you to have more meaningful conversations when both sides of the party are really comfortable with. That's right. Um, so it starts there, relationship building. Don't be a stranger. Uh, you're building up that, um, that cushioning. And then when you become familiar with each other, then you can ask those really hard questions. So if you're starting out, and you start into, and you want to work with traditional custodians, or you want to work with the Aboriginal community. The first thing is to get to know the community. The second thing after that is really get to know the community, <laughs> get to know the individual, develop opportunities to develop relationships. Don't just go head in and say we want an artwork from you, or we want you to share your identity. And give them an opportunity um, to learn about you, uh, whether it's be a part of an activity that happens in your organisation. Yeah, it's um interesting. A lot of a lot of big corporate businesses, or most of them now, have reconciliation action, acts, plan. action plans. Mm-hmm. And how do you find those? Are they do they usually come across as genuine that they really want to make um, cultural change, or are they superficial? And how do you tell between the two? Like, when are you uncomfortable with getting involved in their action plan, and when and what makes it really comfortable for you to be involved? Good question. When it comes to this stuff. It doesn't have to be just the reconciliation action plan. It could be anything. It could be even just acknowledgement of country. Um, when we know when someone's being genuine or authentic in that moment is when they actually take the words for their own. So it's their words. When we dive into these the raps or dive into acknowledgement of country or even just <clears throat> someone asks to do a project we know when someone's been authentic in that moment that they're not doing it just to tick the box. They're doing it because they, they feel as if they need change or they feel that this is what they need. They identified this. They didn't have to have us to tell them that they need to do this. They initiated themselves. They initiated the change. They wanted to change. They wanted to embed Aboriginal culture within their organisation. An acknowledgement country is a perfect example if you're someone that, that reads um, from a, a cue card that's, that's the basic Aboriginal kind of, you know, the, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of this country and pay respects to the elders past and present and emerging. That's it. And then after they say that piece, it's kind of like they throw the cards, like, okay, it's down the business. We hear, what, what are we really here for? So when we have people do acknowledge the country, we ask, yes, do pay your respects to the traditional custodians do pay your respects to the elders past and present and the young and emerging. But we also, you know, we want to want to hear, want to feel what's your personal perspective around that? What's your reflection within that? 
Because other otherwise, it's just words of a card that you're just reading. It's not actually coming from you. The challenge I always ask a lot of organisation is, have you tried doing an acknowledgement country without reading the acknowledgement country? And see what see what happens. Yeah, that's what I did this this right now. I will hope I passed the test. <laughs> you did well. <laughs> right. yeah. it, it's it is you know the acknowledgement country your raps um, they are meaningful things. Mm. It's the difference is are you treating it as a meaningful thing, or is it just something that you have to do? Yeah, is it a token or is it actually genuine? Yeah. And, and so you can just get a vibe for that for the most part. All Aboriginal people, you know, we've been dealing with a lot of disposition, you know, a lot of things happen, trauma, you know, we call it the generational trauma that we feel through our families and we deal with on a daily basis. When you're someone that deals with it on a daily, but from day dot, you can just pick it up and, you know, you know, really, really well when someone's being genuine or someone's not, someone's just there just to put you on show. That's what we say. They just want us to put on show. That's it. Mm -hmm. Um, I do really like that the perception has changed a lot and and we do want to put that culture on display in a positive way that mm. really helps people understand it more. And, um, yeah, like me personally, I really respect and admire con the connection to country. And so I find that really interesting. And um, I really love that I can learn more stories that I never got to mm. learn through school. So mm. that I really like that there's a shift happening in that space and can you tell me about how things have changed in your career you're obviously very busy there's a lot of opportunities popping up and everyone wants a piece of you how does that affect storytelling through art for you yeah so uh, when i was in high school I always compare it back to high school i think we put on the rabbit proof fence movie and that's it that was aboriginal cultural 101 right there for an hour and a half and from that point or that time in my life to now a whole lot's changed it's more embedded. We step beyond the red proof fence. We step beyond just that 30-minute um, workshop with an elder just popped in. You know, we were now seeing within our schools the development. Uh, the raps, same thing. We've seen a lot of the um, organisers. Just a rap for – just elaborate on what a rap is. Yeah, the Reconciliation Action Plan. Yeah. So reconciliation literally means um, in a Catholic term, uh, it's repent, so you're repenting or you, you're acknowledging the harm that was done and you're looking to move forward. Uh, reconciliation um, for the Aboriginal community is about the things that happened in the past, the trauma, the stolen generation, uh, the pestilence, the disease, the massacres. It's about acknowledging that history, acknowledging that that happened. This is what we're going to do now to move forward. The opportunities are going to be given to the Aboriginal people, the, the opportunities for us to learn about the Aboriginal culture. You know, that's what a rap really is. It's an action plan to action the plans to learn, to create connections, relationships, to help um, not only the community but the Aboriginal community and broader uh, opportunities for their staff, opportunities for Aboriginal people to be employed. That's what a rap is. And so we're starting to see that genuine um, development in a lot of organisations. They're starting to we starting to see more and more average people being employed. Uh, we're starting to see uh, that change happen. It's not going to happen in a year. It's not going to happen in a day. It's kind of like with cigarettes. Back in the day, cigarettes you can smoke in a cafe. You know, you can smoke inside, no dramas. And there's a huge campaign that happened. The health, the impact to life, the impact to um, your own health and the people around you, passive smoking, that kind of stuff. At education. Over the years, it started with that. Then it started with the packaging being changed. And nowadays, um, I think there's statistics out saying that there is less smokers than there has ever been in the last 10 years just because of that awareness. And it's that progressive change where it starts becoming the majority were smokers and now it's a minority that are smokers. It's the same with the Aboriginal education and knowledge. At the moment... Um, you know, it's only a minority of people who know about average culture and know how to interact. You're starting to see a shift when now it's starting to become a majority and that's through people taking up a reconciliation action plan. That's our education schools taking up the opportunity to embed more opportunities like yourself um, to work with Aboriginal artists, um, to, to be a part of that community. Um, and now that's starting to become the majority. Yeah, that's really great to hear from your perspective that it is – 
shifting on at a ground level you can see that as an artist well i was actually going to jump into like a real hectic topic we're meeting on what is classed as australia day <laughs> do you want to go down that rabbit hole yeah go on browser you're right all right it's such a contentious day and there's two mm-hmm. sides of the fence just like battling it out it's australia day patriotic and then there's like holy shit this day represents something really horrific to a whole group of people mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people acknowledging that and there's a lot of people uh, just on the opposite side of the fence and that's from where I sit. But I was wondering um, if there's any way, you know, is there a spin you, you'd put on it to give people a bit of an understanding about what it means to you? Yeah, so I guess for me personally, I don't celebrate Australia Day. It's just another day. And I just recognise it as a day where I get up, go to work, support my family go about my business. I don't celebrate in a way where I'm waving the flag or I celebrate in the way where I'm having a party or whatnot. Because for me, um, I'm being respectful to my ancestors and, and my family to, to, to understand that during the day of mourning, you know, there are community members that who are in, a, in this, today is a day of mourning for them. So it'd be disrespectful for me to put on a big party, <laughs> you know, because there are people out there who are um, feeling as if this is not the day to be celebrating. This is a day to reflect. For me personally, I, out of respect for my family, my communities, and I don't celebrate Australia Day. It's hard for you know an, an Aboriginal community members to to see it as a day of celebration because it is a day where uh, we see it as a day of mourning. It's a, it's a day where um, the start, the very starts to change. And it wasn't just soft change, it was violent change. Catastrophic change. Yeah, yeah. a change in we couldn't talk our language, we couldn't share our stories, children were taken from us. Uh, even today we still got um, people out there who's, who's still trying to find where their um, mob is, trying to find their identity. Now you're an artist and as an artist, an Aboriginal artist, you'll, you've got to paint or you've got to develop your artwork based off your identity. If you're part of the Stone generation, that's, you know, that's hard. Your identity's been taken taken with it, as, you know, or you've, it takes a lot of effort to rediscover that. That's right. So how can, you, how can you develop an artwork based off your identity if you're still trying to put together your identity? It's, it is hard to, to imagine that. Um, and so... That's, that's where a lot of that anger, a lot of that sadness comes from the community. Just to, to understand that today is the day where so much is lost. And, um, and I, I see the other side of the fence as well. I see that, you know, this is the day of celebration for them. You know, this is Australia Day. This is where they get to celebrate, to, to celebrate the day of, of Australia was, was considered home to a lot of their ancestors. If, if there's a way to resolve um, the conflict, I mean, it's it's not going to happen. Again, it won't happen overnight, but it will happen over time. And that time, it, it, it gives you time to reflect, to understand each other from both sides of the fence. And then once that time's over, that's when, you know, both sides be able to get together and work out what is the best possible way to ensure that not only we pay in our respects and give time for mourning but also um, give the celebration of the community now and that's what I see it I see it as we we should celebrate what we have now we're starting to have understanding we're starting to see you know connections forming between non-indigenous and indigenous we're starting to see the thirst from non-indigenous people to to have change um, and that's what we should you know focus on that aspect, the understanding, the change, and where people um, are coming from. It's about that mutual respect. I love this. It's it's such a powerful um, topic, and and especially um, the twenty sixth of January being it's it's almost like a embodiment of um, the the challenge to to reconciliation. And I think you touched on some just golden points there about. Um, about seeking to understand instead of, you know, seeking to, to convince the other side. It's mm. you, you, we can't reconcile anything if we're both 
if you know each side is butting heads and battling against each other we can only make change when we're connected and when mm. we're together and that requires an understanding and a respect of both perspectives but you know to understand from a, a non-indigenous perspective we need to understand the depth of what indigenous people feel mm. on this day and it's not in any way detracting from our identity we want we need to understand and to, to seek to to actually care about you know what what an indigenous person feels mm. and what they experience on this day so i think good. i think today is a good day to learn and that's how i see it it's a day to learn and the last couple of years it it has been a day of learning, learning from both sides, but importantly, learning from the um, the non-Indigenous side to to see the pain, the anger, the mourning that's happening for the Aboriginal community, and it is a day of of learning for for both sides. So you know, for the Aboriginal community to learn that there's still work to be done, there's still understanding, there's still learning that needs to happen, and so they will continue with the learnings, the knowledge that needs to be passed. And then for non-Indigenous people from their side, it is it is about learning the feelings of the community, of the Aboriginal community about today. I kind of feel embarrassed now that I, back in the day, used to have the big party and, and think nothing of it, that it meant so, something to other people. And that was a bit younger and more naive and I hadn't really um, gone down that the journey of discovery. But now, for me as well as non-Indigenous, it's just another day. I, I don't really feel comfortable... I don't want to be out there flying the flag in front of a whole group of people who have a really hard time with the day and, you know, that it represents something really nasty and negative. I really appreciate, Troy, that you've been so open and honest with us throughout this whole chat. We are coming towards the end of our our chat together. Yeah, you've really put yourself out on the line again for everyone to hear and we really appreciate your honesty and thanks for coming in to having it and having a chat. Cheers. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Yeah, I'm just blown away with um, our conversation, to be honest. Um, We've we've talked about things that actually really mean quite a lot and I think there's going to be a lot of people who get a ton of value out of it and just like down to their core. So, yeah, I echo that thanks um, to you, Troy, for for being willing to to wade into, um, you know, heavy conversation and share of yourself. It's been a real insight. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I mean, it's these conversations that matter and it's these conversations that need to happen. There's no point in me just not sharing. And I feel as an Aboriginal man and the experience I've had and where I'm moving to in my life, instilling change, whether it's in the arts, whether it's in the education, that's what I'm here for. For me, it is about ensuring that everyone has an opportunity to hear all sides of the story, regardless. Thank you very much, Troy. We uh, hopefully look forward to getting you back on as a guest down the track, maybe to catch up on what you've been up to and what's happening uh, in your world. Um, Thank you very much. Pleasure, mate. You've been listening to the Country Creatives Podcast. Conceived and hosted by Reese Hendy and Caleb Maxwell. Amy Chapman produces the show and support for the podcast comes from Emporium Creative Hub in Mitchell Street, Bendigo. If you've been loving what you're hearing, then please do subscribe, comment or share with your fellow creatives. All links and information can be found at theemporiumcreativehub.com.au.